Hi there, this is Andre Darmanin uh, from Urban Equity Consulting and the co-host of Global Conversations. Today, I actually have my guest, my co-host. It's been a while since uh, since I've seen her. So uh, welcome, Priya. It's nice to see you again and uh, glad you're able to join us and actually lead the conversation today. Thank you. It's nice to be back. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but hey, you know, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're part of this conversation. Um, so, so let's, let's dive right in today. So today we're talking about, you know, the ever-changing language that goes on in EDI and the reactions of not only the professionals themselves, but as well as, you know, the reactions that we're getting, the backlash that we're getting within uh, not only you know, not only with the profession, but more so within the uh, the public itself. Uh, you know, we're starting to see these the resistance from a lot of, especially from uh, those from the right wing, in terms of uh, the initiatives that have been put in place post George Floyd uh, and even prior to that. So, uh, so today is a is a guest that I've had in the previous in my previous iteration, Urban Equity Chats. Uh, you know, Michael is familiar to some of those who have seen. Uh, seen my chats, but uh, you know it's good to have Michael back and agreeing to to be a part of this conversation. So, uh, you know, Michael, it's it's great to see you, and and of course, it's the first time uh, Priya's uh, meeting you uh, in this conversation. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so uh, thanks for this, and you know, Michael, uh, you know, let's uh, let's dive right in. So, mm -hmm. uh, thanks for joining us, Michael, and yeah, and tell and uh, so tell us a little bit about yours. Well, tell the audience if they're not familiar with who you are on social media with your with your with your posts that are very informative and personal <laughs> most times um but you know but they do tell the story of who you are but for everyone else in the audience michael tell everyone who you are and, and what you're all about and and why did you get into the work that you do absolutely well thanks for having me again and uh i'm really looking forward to the conversation and engaging both of you uh, as known, my name is Michael Bow, and I'm an equity specialist. Uh, I do most of my work within the province of Ontario, um, cross-sectorially. I have my own consultancy. It's called Bow and Associates, Inc. Uh, I have a website. I live on LinkedIn, and as you mentioned, I do post often there. And my posts tend to be, as you mentioned, personal. I tend to tell stories in order to bring alive equity and indigenous justice work. So try to really engage the audience and so forth. I used to live on Twitter until it was uh, taken over by someone who would go unnamed. And I haven't really posted too much on, on, uh, on that particular platform, but yes, LinkedIn, I am there. So folks could look me up and so on. So I've been doing this work for quite some time for, little over 26 years and so on so i'm quite steeped in what has happened and what's happening now all right well uh you know what thanks for that and uh thanks for the reintroduction if you will um on this iteration of global conversations and so today you know like i mentioned i'm letting priya lead the conversation this time i want you know i want she's uh she's uh well versed in this in this work so you know what why not let's uh let's dive right in so priya go right ahead so it's been uh it's great to finally get a chance to meet you michael and i'm glad that i got an opportunity to hear a little bit more about your work um 
and just um, hearing about the fact that you've been doing this work for such a long time. It sounds like you started when you were about five years old. Is that correct? <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, I'm buttering you up already, right? Is that, that the whole key? I'm learning very well from Andre. I've been learning that quite, for quite some time now. But oh boy, in just hearing, <laughs> in just hearing about how long you've been doing this work for, I mean, you know, the conversations have been changing and have been ever evolving in terms of the work. And, you know, we've seen, um, you know, uh, events happen, um, you know, historic things that have been happening over time that have, you know, changed uh, the rhetoric and have changed sort of uh, concepts around the work that we do. So I kind of just wanted to get it you know, a sense from you and just sort of ask you about what do you think have been sort of the major influences and sort of shifts that have happened in terms of, um, you know, this work? Well, over the years, I've seen a lot of ebbs and flows in terms of uh, the motivation for doing this work and the motivation for public attention to this work. And I've seen it come in to flow and then flow out of um, the public awareness and public dialogue. And what comes to mind is the Rodney King beating, for example, in, in the 1990s. And that happened and there was a confluence of, of uh, ideas and people and uh, from politicians to uh, various folks in the public and corporate sectors talking about we need to do something for black youth in particular and indigenous youth in general in all their intersecting identities and so forth. When Rodney King was beaten up uh, brutally by the police, uh, a couple of windows were broken downtown Toronto in our main shopping district. And all of a sudden the government pushed a lot of money into youth programming, uh, particularly towards black and indigenous youth. Then the spotlight of the media shifted and went away. And then folks were asking, why is there programs that are specific to black and indigenous youth? Why should it be all youth? And what happened was those programs were taken away or, or opened up. And then black and indigenous youth, um, I'm thinking about joy, Justin Terry youth in particular, which was geared towards those two populations. Uh, they no longer had the focus. So what happened, Justin Terry youth provided a subsidy to employers to hire black and indigenous youth. and uh, first come first serve with those subsidies. And if you bring up an employer along with that, you get first access. Basically, youth who weren't uh, black and indigenous would begin to job search say in um, May, June, while other youth started February. So they brought an employer along, they took up all those subsidized spaces and then black and indigenous youth were yet again uh, on the margins or invisible. So this moment that we're experiencing post um, the beating of the, the actual murder of George Floyd and all the spendings and so forth and interest. And now we're in a moment where that has disappeared. It's, it's basically going away and there is now a backlash. I have seen this over my 26 years of being in the, the sector. So this is not anything new. It's just a different, um, issue or a different thing that has happened. Yeah, and you know, so going into that, going to that uh, conversation a little bit further, you know, 
one of the things that come to mind is the the language that we've that we've come up with during these conversations you know the federal government starts talking about you know visible minorities right talking uh you know saying that we are visible minorities and we you know we get special treatment etc in policies and funding etc then we start going you know i'm not sure on, in terms of timing maybe you can either one of you can can uh can clarify but you know then we start talking about uh the non-government terms of bipoc right uh, black indigenous people of color and then after that we start talking about um you know other other groups um you know gets into the isms uh, of you know um you know uh, not i mean not just racism but other you know and other divisions if you will within the bipoc community if you will and now we're starting to talk about the global majority right in terms of changing the narrative from you know yes we are we are part of the you know we we're initially part of the visible minority and now we are talking about it from uh the global majority because of the fact that number one in the us for instance you see that um uh you see that it's going to be majority as they say majority minority uh, within the next few years and then canada will follow suit <clears throat> excuse me i'm not sure about to the uk but we're starting to see that the conversation change there so is there a is there a point in time that you find that even with these events are they are they consistent or do you find that they're they're ever changing and 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 circular if you will so that's that's a conversation that i'm that i'm a little bit curious about to hear your perspective on well, there's definitely cycles, as noted in my, my uh, opening example, of there being some sort of public or global incident, like the Rodney King uh, beating. Uh, then there's a ton of public interest. Governments then follow in terms of politicians pumping money towards fixing the issue. The spotlight of the media moves on, the attention of the public follows it, and then monies and fundings are withdrawn and then things go back to the way it was so we are on the tail end of that cycle whereby monies are slowly being withdrawn we're seeing mass layoffs firings of edi leads and so forth uh following the mass hiring of them um post uh, george floyd's death so you've always seen those cycles occurring and so forth so we're on the down trend as we have this massive backlash against uh so-called wokeism and um and as well as trans hate uh and the erasure of trans people and so forth so that's the moment that we're in right now but there seems to be something on the horizon with the forming of BRICS, uh which is that uh international organizations of uh the, the Brazilian government, um, uh, China, uh, South Africa, and other countries who are coming together to center their efforts around their own currency and moving away from the US currency as being the standard for the globe. And with that comes a different view around this idea of um, folks who are normally considered the minority really actual, actualizing this whole notion of being the global majority. And it's not a notion, it, 
it is the case. Uh, you know, India just became the most populous um, country in the world at 1.4 billion, followed closely by China and then by Africa. Africa has what, 1.3 billion people um, on that particular continent, what, 2,000 languages. Uh, it just goes on and on in terms of um, variety and complexities of, of uh, what we now call the global majority. And it's beyond a notion, it is what. It is so. I think that now is shaping things differently, and might cycle not cycle around, but actually start a new process whereby folks are saying, "Okay, uh, we want control over our own economies and our own lives, and so forth." And is forming new structures. So I don't know where that is going to go, but right now, as banks in the United States are going in foreclosure or or dissolving and so forth, or at least need, needing rescuing uh, from the government or other larger uh, banks, we're seeing another structure being formed by other uh, countries. So, so Michael, just in hearing what you're saying, then it sounds like in terms of the rhetoric and in terms of how the work is being defined, it sounds like it's not just um, so, like these events of what's been happening in terms of, um, for example, what's happened with like Rodney King in the past that's defined some of the rhetoric that's happened, what's recently happened with George Floyd in terms of violence. It sounds like there's other systems that might be sort of defining a little bit more of the rhetoric as opposed to those types of events. So it sounds like there's um, world politics, there's economy, there's other things that might be defining how uh, the rhetoric is changing. Um, so do you see that as maybe being a little bit more influential uh, than um, what those events might have been before? Yes, absolutely. So we're talking about the structural nature of oppression as well as the structural na nature of the conversation, the uh, solution applied, and then unfortunately, the failure of those solutions. So structurally, we're talking about how various systems uh, tend to interlace and work together to foster, sustain, and amplify various forms of oppression, whether it be our political system, policing, law, child welfare, health, and so forth. And of course, these systems determine our structural determinants of health. And the term is moving from social determinants of health to structural, because it is structural. And it's all those institutions coupled with society that shapes the lives, the conversation around uh, these global quote unquote incidents uh, that we have conversations about. And that, again, these solutions are formulated around. And then, of course, the media being one of those systems that's a part of the structure uh, then determines whether it's still a story or not. So we've seen that with uh, the discoveries of various uh, grave sites on former residential schools and the workup around those sites and the conversation, the interest and all that. And then the attention drifts away and the structural support drifts away as well. And uh, the last time I was on the program, I spoke of um, what is termed as um, trauma porn whereby we get excited about seeing trauma unfold and so forth and getting excited about it and interested in, and very moved 
and passionate about getting something done. But then once that moment and those emotions drift away, so does our attention and we move on. And our medias and structures move on, systems move on as a structure. So definitely that shapes the conversation or it shapes what conversations we're having and when that conversation moves on. Yeah, no, I, you know what, I, I remember that conversation that we had, um, and of course we'll put it, uh, put it in the, uh, in the, in the, um, in the show notes, uh, when we, uh, when we send this, uh, when we uh, send this out and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, because of the state of social media, and we talked about this at the outset in terms of why you, you know, why you not necessarily left, you're kind of on the sidelines when it comes to Twitter, um, because of who's running it and, and et cetera. But, you know, this is the nature of not only globalization, but as well as, you know, as well as the gotcha media and or, or gotcha form of media and all of that. And it's like, it's like we sit there and we take it all in because it's right on our phones and it's easy for us to react to those kind of kind of things. And then, you know, I remember, and, and I don't know if, I don't know if I, we, we talked about in our, in our last conversation, um, the one thing that really got to me was that whole, the black box, right. About, um, you know, I, I can't remember Priya or, or Michael, I can't remember what it was about. It was, um, you know, the black box, uh, saying that, you know, uh, we couldn't talk anymore or, or, you know, it was about black Well, now nah, I can't remember what it is, but anyway, and then of course the whole thing with the LA Clippers back in the day when the old LA Clippers, uh, owner was was racist against his uh, and berating his players with racist epithets and all that so you know we hear about these incidents but it becomes performative and even that becomes an issue so so is it really you know in your opinion i mean even priya you can jump in on this uh in this part of it is it really like you know rhetoric or is it you know i mean it's it's technically performative but i mean you know what gives from even people within our profession in and itself and, and as equity pr uh, practitioners and and whatnot like is it you know in your opinion in your thoughts do you think that uh that we're at fault for this as equity practitioners uh just as much as as much as every as, as much as anyone else in this type of conversation do you want me to start off with an answer or should i do Defer to Prilla. Either one, go ahead. Both of you, we're all in this together. Please go, please go ahead, Michael. I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are. Because when I think about this, I think about who's holding the power, right? Because when when you were speaking, I was hearing uh, the whole piece around the dissipation of everything. And then there's that die down, right, of what happens. Um, and where is that die down? So then where is that conversation being controlled or where is that being held? So I'm just very curious to hear about what your thoughts are. Well, it's there's a lot of complexities as well as subtle complexities that we are speaking of when we raise this question, really. And when it comes to uh, equity leads that are embedded in various organizations, uh, oftentimes, and this wouldn't be new to us or others, uh, those positions are highly, highly under-resourced. Uh, essentially, you're asked to do systemic change, but those too often those positions are direct service staff who are working off the corner of their desk trying to do this work. And when it is a formal 
position within an organization, it's at the middle management level as opposed to being at the executive level, whereby change can truly be tackled. And I say tackle as opposed to happen, because even at that point, it's still very tough to move things throughout a, a system. At the executive table, oftentimes that person doesn't have a budget, don't have the staffing, don't have uh, the positional power, even though they're an executive, to actually move the work. And sometimes not even the support of other executives around the table who might be seen as higher executives. That's the CFO, that's the CEO, that's the COO, as opposed to the CDO, right? The Chief Diversity Officer. So even sitting around the executive table comes with challenges of lacking lacking of um, power, lacking of resources, lacking of including staffing and so forth. So there's that issue, as well as the pressures to conform and to conform to the culture, to conform to what is expected of you and so on. So how much can you truly do internally as an equity specialist or lead embedded in an organization when those who um, you're trying to transform and so forth and sometimes do things that makes them uncomfortable is paying your wage, right? And uh, a community uh, leader said to me once when I was trying to explain to him what my organization is trying to do and they're actually trying to do good work he said you know what michael we love you we, we love you so much but you you're wearing the golden handcuffs you know you have on the golden handcuffs they pay your your salary and benefits and so forth so we know that you could only go so far and what you were saying to us and so on so that was quite telling in terms of um how limited the work can be and then how performative it normally is. So with that, you do need community to hold the equity leads feet to the fire to ensure that they're doing what they're supposed to and in turn the organization. So I often ask the folks in institutions who are your accountability coaches? Who keeps you honest? How do you know what you know about the trans community, about the black community, about various other communities? And what is required in terms of promising practices. How do you know, right? Can institutions actually perform surgery onto themselves? Can equity leads embedded in these institutions do that? Or do they need accountable accountability communities to report to, um, advisory bodies to the CEO, the senior leadership team, board of governors, to um, direct service departments? So if you, you're serving the Francophone community, you need a francophone advisory table to again advise your work with community so that's how you keep the work from being performative and that's how you keep people within the institution accountable but equity leads on their own institutions on their own can't do the work without outside accountability bodies and we often try to do it we can't perform surgery on ourselves so I don't know if I answered the question, but that I kind of teased off a little piece here and there with various words that I caught on to really speak to that performative piece and and is equity leads uh, partly to be blamed for the lack of the for lack of action and for the performative um, sort of experience that we've been going through.
Yeah, no, that's uh, you know that's that's a that's a you know something we've heard on previous uh, webcasts. We've heard it, you know, in general about about the fact of 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 uh, equity leads just um, holding you know holding it down for you know for for people because they're not they're because they're just afraid for afraid to make change or whatnot. So, you know, the one thing that that comes to mind you know, going back to this whole political side of things. And now we, I want to shift the conversation to, you know, this, this anti-wokeism and, you know, we start with woke mm -hmm. and then and start with anti-wokeism. Yeah. So, you know, first thing that comes to mind politically is the, uh, is the fact that we have Bill 96 out of Quebec. Um, and for, for the audience, it's um, Quebec here in Canada. There was a bill that was introduced uh, that forced, um, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of organizations to be more uh, French speaking or, or, or francophone speaking, and now you know, and because of the fear that the French language is is uh, is losing its luster, if you will, and the federal government kind of uh, uh, followed suit. But with that, sorry, the like extinction, basically. yeah, extinction, extinction exactly, basically. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, Priya, and. And then, of course, but at the same time, you know, with this Bill 96 came uh, a lot of a lot of um, parts of the policy where they were talking about, um, you know, that there were some some racist part of the policies, uh, you know, especially when it came to uh, new immigrants, um, you know, and the fact that the new immigrants didn't don't know the language. So that, you know, there's a there's some forms of xenophobia and whatnot. And then so, I mean. You know, there's that, and then of course after that comes you know what's going on, especially in the U.S. and the U.K., where we're starting to see this anti-wokeism from you know not only from right-wing people but from the as they call progressives, right? Where uh, you know we start seeing the, these types of conversations of you know I think there was even something from the Virginia Military Institute where they have a black EDI leader who said EDI is dead. And it's like, what are you talking about, right? So, I mean, you know, from your experience, you know, we talked about at the outset in terms of, um, you know, we're starting to see a shift where a lot of organizations are pulling their funding uh, for EDI, laying off and not giving attention to EDI. Um, you know, what are your thoughts when you when you start to see this type of conversation happen uh, in the U.S. and uh, and abroad, and even now it's kind of seeping in into Canada. So. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So those two massive chunks. So what I'll do is um, address the legislation that you referred to in Quebec uh, very quickly and then move on to the larger context that we're experiencing in terms of um, the so-called anti-wokeness movement and uh, the erasure of trans people, because that's what it is. Uh, when it comes to the legislation, uh, introduced in Quebec, uh, definitely acknowledge, we must acknowledge that uh, the Francophone community is an equity-seeking community within Canada and other places on the planet where they exist outside of um, uh, majority countries where it, it's, it's uh, Francophone or French. So definitely here in Canada, um, we do need to protect uh, French language and the Francophone community. And of course, those who speak French 
and are part of the Francophone community, it's a whole um, experience of being Francophone. It's beyond just the language. It's your entire identity. It's, it's the language in which you dream, you, you form jokes and all those pieces that makes um, someone's identity whole in terms, of, in terms of that. And of course, there are folks who are Francophone that are from different racialized identity faiths and all those pieces. But yes, what in, in protecting the Francophone uh, language and, and uh, way of being and culture, which is very important, that particular legislation uh, put other communities at risk. And if we take the indigenous community, for example, or non-French non speaking folks to access emergency services become a, an issue. Um, if indeed you have to access it in French and you, and you don't have the, the language capacity. Um, so that becomes a challenge as well. It speaks to the fact of also the preservation of indigenous languages, right? Um, in uh, not only in Quebec, but across the country as well. And uh, the legislation challenges that. So I do hope that it's uh, revisited and um, certain things that have been brought to the fore is addressed uh, so that the, the uh, French language as well as the Francophone community is protected, but it opens up access to other folks so that um, harm isn't created or even people's lives aren't put at, um, at risk because they can't access, say, emergency services. So that's uh, my thought with regards to that. When it comes to the anti-wokeism movement, as it's so-called, and so forth, yes, we are in a tremendous shift. Because uh, again, that spotlight of uh, George Floyd's murder has now shifted. And what I think is happening is a confluence of uh, the mental health uh, crisis that is happening across various communities, across the planet, within organizations, locally and abroad. So there is that happening. And then there's the equity work and, and indigenous justice work happening beside it, which creates discomfort in people and so forth. And there's an association of blending of the, the, um, the psychological, uh, the lack of psychological safety and mental wellness that people are feeling because of the pandemic, the isolation, the alienation, the disassociation from others and so, all that in society and in institutions with the discomfort of doing the equity work. And people see that equity work as being now psychologically unsafe, or they feel that it's putting tremendous stress on society in organizations and so forth. So maybe you need to slow the work down or stop it or pause it or what have you. So there's those sort of uh, things that are going on that is causing that. Plus people are feeling um, though those, because uh, we experience all of our identities through our race. So there, is, there has been a backlash by those who are racialized white feeling that over the last three years in particular. And beyond that, they have been blamed for everything, made, made to feel ashamed of who they are in terms of uh, their racial identity, uh, feel silenced, um, can't say what they normally would or could or what have you. Um, they 
uh, made to feel psychologically unsafe and so on. So there's that also going on um, when it comes to the equity work that they're framed around wokeness and so forth. And wokeness also include environmental uh, concerns because uh, that's also woven into that. Anything to do with what is considered progressive thinking or actions is woven into this idea of wokeness and so on. So that is what's going on. What has happened with the pandemic in terms of um, people's real mental health uh, issues and all that and the stressors and all that that comes with is being interwoven with the discomfort that comes with the work of equity and social justice of doing that self-questioning and uh, self-introspection and so forth because uh, it's very personal work and people are now centering equity at times as being the reason for everything else. I'll just end by saying uh, Tina Lopez, she wrote Walking on Life Ambers. She said that equity tends to be the light, lightning rod for everything that's going wrong in an organization. The lights aren't working, uh, it's equity. If uh, there seems to be um, issues around culture within organization, it's equity. It gets blamed for everything that's going wrong. So when it comes to this anti-wokeness movement, it's the same thing there, that it's being blamed for everything and everything is rolled up in it and, and so on. And then of course, the backlash against trans people, which is very real and scary. Sorry, I'm trying to find my unmute button. So it sounds like when I'm hearing you speak, it's really, so much more complex than I think when what meets the eye at first or when you hear about it because I think when you know when people have been talking about it, it seems so simple to people they think oh it's just one event or it's just a couple of things that have happened especially during the pandemic thinking that those are the events that have really shifted how people have um, spoken about these things or have spoken about DEI or have spoken about the work or have you know changed how we've um, use certain terms or how terms have evolved when actually it sounds like there's just so much more complexity you have to you know look at things more um, step back and look at the entirety of what's really been going on from so many different levels as opposed to just saying well you know that is what we can pinpoint as being the the real sort of space as to where things have been happening and how things have been sort of evolving so I guess uh, just to sort of in that sort of line then you know, we talked about the anti-wokeness piece, which I think is you know, a really big piece that is happening and I think has been really, you know, come to the forefront. And I think, you know, as much as there's been that, that strength and that movement around, you know, uh, the DEI work or um, having that evolution in terms of sort of the terms that, you know, have been uh, evolving in terms of BIPOC and, and you know, where those, those sorts of terms have been going. There's also been the other side that we've been speaking about in terms of the other extreme of the anti-woke, and all of that and that momentum that's been kind of happening. So I guess what I wanna ask you is where do you see all of that going uh, from here? Cause there is so much momentum happening. There's so much synergy that's that's going on on both, on both sides. Where, where do you see, um, you know, it kind of going from here in terms of the work and all of that? I think language always and has always Transform to try to 
capture the nuances and meaning of what we're seeing, what we're experiencing, what we're trying to label. Because uh, all language is, and I'll center out English, for example, is the compression, this wind compression of um, our uh, throats to make sounds that we craft into words, then we put into sentences. And through that, then we label everything around us, including ourselves. We give ourselves various labels, whether it be on the lines of gender, gender expression, uh, sexual orientation, racial identity, culture and ethnicity, and so forth. So it's all made up just based on um, ear pressure that creates language. So with that, we're continually recreating, reimagining language to capture our current uh, situation, our current understanding of our experiences and all that. So language is always, um, you know, transform. With that said, language can also be co-opted like wokeness um, or the term woke, because it really came from a place of safety when black folk weren't sure what their experiences might be in a particular town or city or state. So basically it was really saying, hey, to be safe, don't go here, here is safe, take this road and so forth. So it's to keep awake, keep woke when you're traveling through these areas that you don't know and folks are informing you how to keep safe. Now, of course, it has taken on a life on its own, it has been uh, co-opted and then changed to mean something that it doesn't. So language could also be co-opted. I also think of um, uh, Josiah Henson, who um, a book was written about in terms of the, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin and so forth, and how his life, that word was actually, um, uh, Uncle Tom was once uh, a positive term, if you will, had positive associations because Josiah Hansen uh, basically um, got his freedom from down south, made his way up into Canada, established himself in Driston, Ontario, brought, went back and brought other enslaved Africans uh, to Driston, Ontario. Uh, Established a school for everyone, regardless of their identity in that community. Um, essentially, uh, he was knighted by Queen Victoria and all this, these pieces. So his name was associated with something very positive and, and, um, and so forth. And then it was co-opted once more to mean something very bad, something, uh, you know, that is, you know, that we as Black folk don't want to associate with. So language, words, terms um, has always been co-opted and then changed and turned against the folks who use it as something positive and as something uh, enduring or uh, a point of safety. So we have also created words to try to identify ourselves um, or around coalition. For example, um, BIPOC was created by um, Black, Indigenous um, uh, folks from uh, various American communities. I'm trying not to say people of color because we have to problematize that as well. Uh, but it was created as a point of coalition 
and so on to kind of say, how could we group together to sort of work against uh, white supremacy and so forth. However, it's problematic because it's really pulling together uh, the experiences of African descent with the indigenous experience, with a whole group of folks, people of color, people of various Asian identities and all their complexities and cultures and richness and so forth. So that has to be problematized as well. Plus we're not people of color. We're not just colors. Uh, so even that term that we pull together to as a point of coalition can also be problematized and re rethought. But yeah, we're trying to, as human beings with this thing we created as language to capture again, who we are, our experiences, and we have the labels to ourselves. And the bad part of that is we tell people you're in that label, you're in that gender label or racial label, whatever, don't get out because uh, you're in there. And if you try to do something that is not in um, relation to that particular label, that's when we jump on you. What? You're a girl. What do you mean you want to play football or box? No, no, no. Get back in your category. Get back in your label. That's mm -hmm. So it gets associated then with behaviors and then, you know, and then we make those assumptions and it, so it sounds like it becomes a bit of a slippery slope or it can become very problematic in those sorts of ways as well. It's, it's language then becomes just so, so much more powerful. Um, and I think that's one thing that I'm really, you know, learning a little bit more and more about. And I think this podcast especially has really opened a lot more about that piece for me. I, I've always been very mindful about um, language and about labels and all of that. But this really, um, especially when you're reading, especially when you're hearing and, and you hear these new terms that have been coined by people and and you think about it and you think, wow, this is like really interesting. And it gets you thinking and you think, you know, there's always this sort of sense of stepping around. Well, you know, is this the right, is this the right term to kind of use? And especially when you're doing this kind of work, you're always kind of concerned that, ah, you know, am I going to be, is this, you know, is this okay? And then who's defining this? Who's saying that this is an okay term to use? And especially when you're working in different sectors, right? Like there's always that piece of, okay, well, this is the term that we use. And then, you know, somebody looks at you in a meeting and thinking, you get that face. Yeah. <laughs> and, and even I, too. I've seen that. Yeah. And then you feel this discomfort of like, and that's not what you guys use. And then, you know, if you're in a different sector, they're like, no, we don't say that. That's horrible. Like you get, yeah. you get the shaming almost. And it's, and it's, so it's really interesting to hear that, that, you know, everybody, you know, has this sort of piece of, of what they use and how they use it, but looking at really what historically something might've meant and how it kind of got changed or manipulated in some ways or shifted to be used for, you know, their, for someone, someone's own power, or for someone's own, you know, uh, usefulness, or you know, could be just shifted because it means something else at a different time. Um, and so, I think that's what's really, you know, interesting. That I know, I'll be honest, as somebody who, you know, uh, does does the work, and you know, feeling really uncomfortable and not sure sometimes about what to use and where to step and then you know i've already got told what i need to use but sometimes you feel really 
uncomfortable and you may challenge that, but then it's kind of like, that's just sort of set in stone and that's what you just use and you move forward. But being in circles and hearing these different terms and thinking, you know, like, I know, you know, use global majority and people being like, yeah, how can you say that? Or, you know, people have said BIPOC and, you know, and that's what we're just going to go with and just hearing the evolution. And, and you can't just say that it's just, well, it's just language, you know, you, you can't like, it's, it's such a difficult thing. So I found this podcast particularly to be quite riveting for yeah. me. Yeah. And also too, I want to add, it's like, you know, you know, the conversation has shifted, um, you know, everything, basically everything is cyclical. Like, I mean, even the conversation when we started not the conversation but conversations in general when you, we start to talk about you know equity deserving equity equity seeking equity impacted um and then i saw another term a few a few months ago equity equity denied so even that circle becomes you know problematic and this is the whole thing and before you know before we we end this conversation it's you know what I've learned from you and what I've learned from this conversation from all of us is that it depends, right? It depends on the circles that we're in. Uh, it depends on the nature of the conversation. And also at the same time, everything is, uh, is, is cyclical. And, um, and yeah, and that's something that really, really struck me, um, you know, listening to you, Michael, um, you know, and in terms of not only the conversation that we had, uh, in the south, I believe it was in the summer last year, but even now, I mean, this is the, this is something that we're starting to see, and this is, uh, you know, these are the conversations that we have in in and you know as practitioners in this work, and so it's just for us, it's just like we need to go with the flow, and if some people get, you know, it's not necessarily people being offended, it's more how do we accommodate the 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 situation, how do we accommodate the people that that are there, so um you know any last words before we uh before we uh sign off today yeah i think uh just to uh dovetail of what you just noted i think when it comes to um how people choose to label themselves definitely we should honor that and go with that um and then there are certain words that we need to jettison from our lexicon like the word guy that's offensive to trans people like I, I feel so crazy today that has led to a lot of uh, women not being believed that they've experienced sexual violence i feel schizophrenic or bipolar those are actual diagnoses that people experience and struggle through mm -hmm. and so Absolutely. forth so these are, these are things that we should jettison and it shouldn't be um a second thought um instead of saying i'm going to put you on mute or could you put your mic on mute it's uh, could you silence your mind because mute and dumb also have mm -hmm. impact on people and so on. So these are things, there's so many things that we have to reconsider and jettison from our lexicon. But when it comes to labeling um, each other, what we want to be identified as, we should uh, you know, honor what people are saying they want to be called by. Um, for example, you know, the equity deserving, to me that harkens back to the Victorian uh, period where it was the deserving poor versus the not deserving poor. So are there folks who are not equity deserving or of equity identities and those who are equity deserving? So what are we saying? So we have to be very careful language that we craft through the uh, air compression and uh, our 
windpipe to create words and label everything around it. So I just wanted mm -hmm. to leave, leave you off on that with that. Thank you. The last thing that I just wanted to uh, do before we sign off was just to make sure that our audience that are going to be listening, um, just where they can reach you and how they can reach you if they wanted to get a hold of you. Uh, they could reach me through um, Michael at bowandassociates.ca or through LinkedIn. So just Google my name, Michael, A-E-L, Bow, B-O-W-E. And um, you could reach me through uh, uh, Twitter. I even forgot about it. <laughs> I'm really on it. <laughs> you don't use it. Or you could, yeah, so you could email me, reach me through various uh, social media, or visit my website. Okay. Well, great. It was wonderful to have you, and it was a great conversation. And like I said, I'm a lifelong learner, and I find this podcast a really good place for me to learn and um, also recognize some of the places where I can do better and be better. So thank you so much for that. Okay. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you both. All right. Thanks, Michael. It was uh, great having you. And uh, until next time, uh, please visit uh, my website uh, to see previous episodes, youtube.com at Urban Equity 416, or you can reach me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook under Urban Equity Consulting. Thanks very much and looking forward to seeing you next time.